Hello and welcome again to Fat Free Film. I'm your host, Joel Marshall. And I'm Pamela Lopez. And we have the pleasure today of sitting with Pierre Oppenheimer, an extremely pro prolific independent film producer. He's made over 16 feature films and is in the process of developing many, many more. Thank you so much for being with us today. You're quite welcome, but actually I made more than 30 films. Wow. wow. Yeah, some I like to forget about. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you tell us a little bit, Pierre, about how you first started in the business, where you were, and how you came to decide to become an independent film producer? I started really as a journalist. And uh, I started out by uh, writing for a lot of specialty magazines like Sight and Sound in England, all over the world. And after doing it for almost a year, I think my total income was somewhere around $20 or something. I should it was a little bit more than that, but not enough to, to really make it worthwhile. That was a long time ago. And from there, I went into magazines and became probably the most prolific fan magazine writer. Stuff was all god-awful. Uh, using as much imagination as anything else. And I would go to New York about four times a year with a list of about maybe 200 ideas and then come back and do two stories a day. Wow. And, and uh, there was, for a while it was fun. It was making a good living at that time, but it was not what I wanted to do. And the next step was I got in, involved in a Sunday supplement called Family Weekly. And Family Weekly still exists today, in fact, uh, as USA Weekend. It's not the same publication, but at that time there were four publications, four supplements. American Weekly, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, Parade, which does exist. Uh, it was a, Family Weekly was, was the latecomer, really. It was one more. And uh, it started out by a man who was more involved in advertising than editorial, with very little money, uh, had a hard time really surviving. I think we had a circulation of about 750,000, which was not enough. And uh, from there, I, I, I don't quite know how this came about, but I became a first a freelancer, then a contributor, and later on Hollywood editor, and then West Coast editor for a very brief time editor-in-chief just to replace someone who had left uh, for a little while. And uh, that was a very good experience. And it was, we grew at that time from around 750,000 to about 15 million circulation. So wow. with a readership at five to one that was read by an awful lot of people. Hmm. And it had to be introduced to Hollywood. I was totally ignored at first because there was you know, there were three other mag a lot of other magazines much bigger. And um, eventually it did work out because as the circulation went up, I got more attention to it. Uh, to where it became, a, if it, it was easier in those days because times have changed. I mean, today when you write for magazines, you depend very much on the people, on people who really want to stay out of the news. They pay their publicists to stay away or make conditions that you can't meet. Uh, then, because of the circulation it had, it was different. It was much, much easier, and it worked out well. And from there, I went into television. And no, I'm, yes, from there, I went into television. That was right. 
and had an idea of using the, the magazine format for a television show. Mm. I mean, it used to be fairly standard that when you did a story, you interviewed someone because they were very famous, which is still being done. You don't write a story about someone who is famous. You have to have a story, you have to have an angle. And that was my sales point. You need an angle to tell a story, or you don't. And uh, presented it to NBC. And uh, at that time, I'm just trying to remember exactly how it happened. They liked the idea, but they said, what can you do? They were looking for a daytime show. It was, I believe, from 4.30 to 5. I don't, I'm not quite sure if that was quite a while ago. And they said, what are you going to do after the first week? Because you, know, you propose to do two people a day, two 50-minute, half hour each day. And I made up a list of, of about, I think, maybe 3,000 recognizable names. They were not interested in 3,000, but they were interested, I would say, in at least 500 to 1,000 people. And, uh, were these also, people in all types of industry? No, or no they, they were, were mostly well-known actors. We, 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 we didn't, we concentrated on actors for the show. Mm -hmm. um, once in a while we did people behind the scene, but very rarely, like Edith Hatt, who was a fashion designer, uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, they, uh, I, they, they were a number, but not too many exceptions. And so, the, the, so, I'm sorry, but you just assumed, because television is so different from print, yes. did you, how were you able to get yourself in front of the proper people to make that pitch to them? Uh, we did a pilot. In fact, we did three pilots, and the pilots were financed by NBC. And they liked all the pilots, but they were not happy with the, with the uh, interviewer. And the first, and he was very good for it, incidentally, but they felt he didn't, he was not young enough to have an audience. So they, we did the first one, and they said, no. I talked them into using the first one again, because he was so good, and they said, no. And then we did the third one, and that worked. And we had two interviewers at the time, a man named Dean Miller, and a girl named Joanne Jordan, who was very prominent in, in, in advertising, really. And uh, they went for the show, and we did that. I changed uh, interviewers about halfway through, and uh, had Jack Linkletter and uh, Helen O'Connell hmm. as the interviewers. And as far as the studios were concerned, they loved the idea of having such a huge audience, because we were not only were we an audience, but the topic uh, was very exotic. You know, you dealt with films, you dealt with well-known personalities. And being uh, really made for a women's audience, afternoon audience, we first showed where they lived. So if we were in Beverly Hills, we would drive through Beverly Hills for three, four minutes, maybe not two minutes, then showed the house. And after we showed the house, then we sat down together with them and interviewed them. Mm. And usually we had two people. Uh, 15 minutes each, when we had someone who talked really well, you know, like, I don't know, like a Betty Davis, like people like that, you went the whole half hour. John Wayne, who was fantastic. And, there were, so, and we did, I think, just about everybody I can think of in Hollywood with only two exceptions. The only two people I couldn't get were uh, 
the first one's Cary Grant, and I knew Cary Grant really quite well because I've done a lot of stories on him before as a journalist. And he said, I'm not going to help you uh, with television because it's killing movies. So he didn't. And the other one was Elvis Presley. And Colonel Parker said, of course you can have Elvis. And I said, well, that's great. He said, that's going to be 125,000 or 150,000, whatever it was. And I said, we, we, we don't give out presents. See, they were interviewed as a promotion. We give them a present afterwards. <laughs> and he said, they said, if I give it to Elvis, we have to give it to everyone. We're out of business. It doesn't work. Yeah. But other than that, it was very it was very easy for us to get people. The studios would come to us. Mm. It's almost like they would. It's almost like you were doing them a service in a way. It's almost like you were doing them a service by promoting their talent. Absolutely. I mean, you you ended up with millions and millions of viewers, and if you have a film that comes out, that's you know works. Let me give one example. For instance, how things work. One is we traveled a great deal. I would say every two or three weeks, and with a huge group. I had a crew of creative and actual crew of close to 80 people. And on one trip, we went to, um, uh, I think it was in Germany, The Great Escape. Do you remember the mm -hmm. film with yeah. Steve McQueen? Sure. And, and great cast. And when we went on location, of course, we couldn't go to the house, so we came up with something else. And I knew Steve before from, from, from being a journalist. And as we talked, and he mentioned something about the, the escape on the motorcycle. Mm -hmm. And he showed it to us, and I said, this is what we want to do for it. And we did it. And I think it was a United Artists film. I'm not quite sure, but I think it was. And they used it as a big promotion then for the film. So they showed that clip when he rode they off on they, the motorcycle? They used the, they, they, I, don't think they, I don't know if they used the clip, but they used the scene in it. Mm -hmm. And they, I think they, I'm sure they used the clip too. Wow. Yeah. So in that case, you went on location on the set, and usually you went to the person's house. Whenever we went on location, then of course we were not at the house. Mm -hmm. Then we had to do something different. Yeah. I mean, at one time, I remember we were in um, in Sweden, and we stayed at the I think at the Grand Hotel, and you can't drive through a street in in, in Sweden; it just doesn't work. <laughs> and uh, I saw a sightseeing. Tours, and I said, well, maybe we can sort of take the sightseeing tour as the introduction to what Stockholm is, Stockholm is like for the first few minutes. And they said, fine. And I said, how much? And they gave me a price, and I said, um, too too high. We can't go that far. They said, well, what do we get out of it? And I said, I explained the publicity involved. I said, we have a better deal for you. You can get it for nothing. And we did it. And uh, I invited them, of course, for, for, for dinner. And they invited me out for, for the longest day of the year. So a nice relationship developed. But it was good for everyone. Mm -hmm. So you got to know Stockholm because of the canals. Mm. And how did you transfer from, so then you, you were known as a television producer. I was known as a television producer. And then uh, at that time, um, there was a big divide in the public perception or the industry perception of the value of television and film. I, I know up until maybe only 20 years ago, actors would say, oh, I don't want to do television, I only want to do film. How did you make the leap from the small to the large screen? I always wanted to, to be in films. I just didn't know how to get into it. And um, I, 
have a friend, had a friend, he doesn't live, not around anymore, doesn't live anymore, and he knew I wanted to do it, and he had a film he wanted to do in Vietnam. And he had done two films in Vietnam, and they were a little bit like B versions of John Wayne films, the gung-ho type of films, but not, not that well done. Would I do his, his next film? Hmm. And I said, I'd love to. And he showed me the script, and I said, uh-uh. That's not what I want to do. <laughs> I mean, I don't mind having fun, but it's not even fun. Yeah. But I said, I'll make you a deal. I'll go to Vietnam. I'll see if I can come up with a story. And if I can, you want to do it, we'll do that story. And I did. I went to Vietnam. And I came back. And uh, he liked the story, but he had just signed a new, new deal for a new television series. And he wasn't available, hopefully, from his point of view, for the next seven years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I had to go and find someone else to do, to do the film. When you came up with the story, how did you come up with the story when you went there? It was a different procedure because when I first, first I wanted to do a serious film. When you were in Vietnam, this was in 1964, uh, you had a pretty good idea what was going on. And this was not was promoted or publicized. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I was going to have a serious film about that. And then I kind of was talked out of it because uh, I could not get a distribution for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, also I learned then and later on, if you do political films, uh, by the time the films come out, everything might have changed. It's not a very good idea. Mm -hmm. So instead of that, I came up with the idea of doing an American uh, James Bond type of film, and have fun with it. Hmm. Did you write the the script, or I did you? I co-wrote the script. Uh, I co-wrote the script, and I, I produced it. I am interested that you say you couldn't find distribution for it, but you hadn't even made it. So you obviously understood before you made it. And this is something that I would love for you to explain to our audience. Before you even write the film, when you just have the idea, are you already um, lining up where you're distributing it? And how do you do such a yes, thing? Yes, I do. There were only twice that I went ahead without, maybe three times, without anything being in place. One time, it worked very well. It was very successful. And another time, it was a total failure. Because when you take a chance, I mean, when you say, for instance, the film I'm thinking about that worked so well was Blue Car, which I made Wonderful much later. Film. And it worked well. We went to Sundance, it worked at Sundance, and we had a commodity. If it hadn't been to Sundance, we would have had a much harder time. Uh, but you cannot do a film based on that, whether or not you might get a, a nomination or an award someplace, because it may not happen. And uh, then whatever you put in could be total loss. There are so many films that, that, that have never been shown, period. So it can happen. So my, my advice to anyone, or suggestion to everyone, don't go out till you're not at least partially covered, till you have some kind of distribution. How do you do that, though? Uh, it becomes a chicken and an egg thing, kind of, what comes first. Now, I was quite willing to put my, I put up my own money. I financed the film. Uh, I put up 98% of Was this the, money. the film in 1965? Yes, it was the first film. And what was that film called again? It, was, it had various titles. Uh, Operation CIA mm -hmm. was, I think, the one that survived, but it did have one or and two And you other. put your own money into it? Yeah, except for 2%. My brother gave oh. me 
another relative gave me one percent. Wow. The rest was mine. And that, that of course, you know. But um, I said I did have distribution, mm-hmm. guaranteed. Uh, the company that did it, in fact, which became Allied Artists, or was Allied Artists, changed hands a number of times. Uh, and in fact, when the film came out, they, they had some financial problems, and they weren't able to pay me initially what they were supposed to pay. Mm-hmm. But eventually it worked out. So had you gone to Allied Artists when you came back from Vietnam and yep. said, look, I would like to do this? And you knew them from how? I knew that, and I tried various other companies, too. Uh, this one worked out and also taught me a lesson about legal work, what to do. And in, order, in order to bring in the film on, on you know, a very tight budget, um, I made an allowance, but I had a, had a lawyer friend of mine who was, was a judge, in fact, who became a judge, still is a judge, who was doing it for nothing. You couldn't do any better than that mm-hmm. uh, to help out. And we had used them on other things before, so there was a good relationship there. And when we submitted it to Allied Artists, the man who was there, I'm trying to remember exactly how it was, sent it back and pointed out all the mistakes we had made and corrected it from my side, which was fantastic. <laughs> and the reason the first one didn't know about what to do was he was not involved in films. And film laws are very different from, from you know, almost any kind of uh, mm-hmm. other legal work. Mm. But the thing about, uh, that was interesting about um, uh, Operation CIA, uh, I then went out to cast it and had that man I came up with turn out to become very successful result of it was Burt Reynolds. Oh. Burt Reynolds at that time had done f- t- television. I think had done a, a small, not not the leading role in a small film. This was really his first film. And he was fantastic to work with, incidentally. So and do you, do you feel that now, um, because I remember there was a period of time where a producer like yourself who had a track record, who people knew, just whatever film they were doing next, there would be sort of a negative pickup arrangement or something where you knew your film would be in the movie theater. Now this doesn't seem to be happening. Well, first of all, now to, to be in a theater today is so expensive that almost nobody will make a commitment. If you have a big film, yes, you, you get it. The studios can get it. Obviously, the major studios can get a distribution. But it costs so much money. You can self-distribute. You can get a number of, of theaters to commit to it, a limited number to see you have a release, which helps them with television sales. But that has changed drastically. I mean, t- today, and I think one, one curious thing is today that uh, very often, even with very important actors, you have a guarantee that the films will be released in so many markets and so much advertising money will spend when sometimes you know after the opening or after the first week or so it's not going to work and they still have to go on promoting it and then you know nobody's making any money. And you're compelled to do that by a contract? Uh, In some instances you have. I mean if you're a big name star, yes, then you want it. From this first movie that you made, 
Did you turn a profit, and then were you able to parlay that into your next film, or how did it go yes, from there? Yes, I, I, I did. It, it worked out all right. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, uh, it also, once you make a film, the first one, then it becomes a little easier to do the second one, because you learn. Mm -hmm. And uh, doing it was not easy, because the best way to learn is when you're totally on your own. I brought all my key people from the US. Mm -hmm. And we shot it in Thailand because we couldn't shoot it in Vietnam anymore. The fighting was too hard. So we shot Thailand for Vietnam, part of it in Hong Kong. Did you bring people that you had worked with before on your television show? Yes. Uh, no, not just on television, also friends of mine. For instance, the DP mm -hmm. was absolutely brilliant. Uh, he was also the co-inventor of the Panavision lens, incidentally. Oh. Mm. And he had worked as, a, uh, as an operator, but never as a DP. There was his chance to work as a DP, and he, in fact, brought some of his own equipment along. So most of the people I knew. But still, you know, we were eight, 9,000 miles away. I can't believe that you would choose to do your first film like that, just near, you know, first of all, you were going to go into a war zone, and then you decide, well, we'll just do it kind of near there. Yeah. It seems like such a big risk. Well, I, I shot part of it, in fact. I went in with a camera crew mm -hmm. when there was a short political time when the man, man named Diem, who was then really uh, in charge of South, not in charge, he was running South Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And he was overthrown by a general named Diem. I don't remember all the names exactly. And we went in shot footage, you know, with live ammunition flying all around us. Oh. But we couldn't match it later on, so we couldn't use it. Oh. <laughs> oh my goodness. But you could do something with that now, that footage of Vietnam. It's still around. We could, yes, I, we don't quite know where, where we were. Flashbacks. Actually, I have no records of that time anymore. It was so long ago mm. that yeah. it's mostly from memory. What do you think about the state of the industry today from your perspective? Do you think that we're heading in a direction that's sustainable? How do you see this whole influx of new media affecting um, the film business? Films will always be made, whether they are digital or, or whatever. It doesn't make any difference. Uh, beyond that, I don't think anybody can forecast what's going to happen eventually. It's much, in a way, it's more difficult. On the other hand, fewer people make films. I mean, like, last year there were so many films, it was hard to find a spot. This year there are far fewer. Uh, I don't think anybody has the answer for it. I think going to the theater will be like going, I mean, going to see a film will be like going to the theater. You know, you have fantastic seats, you get served food, and it's a day out because it's so expensive to do it. Mm -hmm. But I think that the audiences probably will go down. Uh, and new technical changes will come up all the time. And, we, and you know, very likely that in not too, too, too long a time, uh, you show your credit card, and uh, that's it. And you, you get the film. And the film will then immediately report it. The income will be reported directly to what, the credit card, whatever, whatever mm -hmm. the account is. Mm -hmm. uh, but nobody can predict the future of films, how that's going to work. N only that films will be made. 
Are you noticing a nervousness in the financing of films because of this newness Very going? Very much. Tremendous, tremendous. Uh, I was involved, I, I gave a luncheon uh, a few months ago to announce a new film fund, for instance. Uh, now, w w when there is a film fund, you don't have to look for projects. They come to you, that makes it much easier. To get a commitment for money today is far, far more difficult because pre-sales are very difficult to get. Uh, the, you don't want to have too many pre-sales because if you sell everything in advance, there's never any profit in this case. So it, it's, the times have changed. To finance films today is more difficult. How, how are um, independent filmmakers financing their films now? I, I think it's kind of peculiar because a lot of totally independent films get made because somebody wants to make it. You have a writer, producer, actor, director, and he puts in either his own money or the family money and uh, is bent on doing it no matter what. Many times those things don't work, which is too bad because if somebody does that, at least you should be able to get something out of it. But it, is, it was easier, frankly, years ago than it is today. Hmm. When you made that movie, Blue Car, yeah. it seemed to me from the movie that the subject matter was very challenging. It was. And was that a difficult movie to get made? I mean, I know it was really well received. That film was turned down by everybody probably three times. It was turned down because of the subject matter. It was turned down because of the first-time director. Uh, and the only way finally to make it is, again, I put up almost all the money was mine. About 85% was my own money. Really? It's the only way we could get it made. Hmm. And we were fortunate. We had, we had a very good director. And it worked out all right. And it went to Sundance. So it, it worked. But it, it was, I mean, if it wouldn't have worked, then, then you know, it would have been the big loser. <laughs> I was going to say, um, have you worked much in the studio system? And what is, uh, um, where, where you're an executive and you're in with, the, with understanding how that whole machine functions? Yes, I, I was. I've worked indirectly with several studios. I mean, for instance, a film, uh, Rails and Ties, Warner Brothers, directed by Alison Eastwood, Clint Eastwood's daughter. And when you work with a major studio, you really, uh, unless you're, uh, a handful of people, like a Clint Eastwood, uh, like a Steven Spielberg, uh, who can insist on having the final cut, who can insist on certain conditions that most of us can't do, uh, the studio will give you consultation rights, but they will have the final word. You become an employee. And the good thing is that you know you, you get your costs are covered and you get a salary. Mm. Uh, but you don't have the control that you have over an independent film, anywhere near it. How did you get involved with that film, Rails and Ties? Did Rails and Ties, I made a film with Allison. It was a, a family. Previously. Yeah, it was, yeah, previously. It was a, a, family, a family type of film. And uh, uh, I was, let me just, no, there was not Rails. No, there was another film. It was not a family film. Mm -hmm. 
it was a film which I had a director said we worked on it for a long time. It was a, a very difficult kind of film to make. And I had a director attached to it. And he, when it came, before we got ready to really go into the film, he was offered, he had worked without having an income for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. He was quite a well-known director, and a very good director, and a very nice guy. And he accepted another job, he had to. And I was left <clears throat> with a starting date, and didn't have a director. Oh. And so I went with a substitute director and did it. And Alison really came in at the last moment. And what impressed me about her was that her comments about the film were excellent. They were right on. And they were not about her part. They were about the film as a whole. Mm -hmm. and, that, and she gave me the script to read. And I thought, the script sounds great. And then she said she wanted to, to act in it, and she wanted to get into production. Hmm. And I thought that she should really direct it instead, because I felt she would make I had a, a good experience before with Blue Car. She should direct the script. So she gave me the script to read, and I thought that it was a good script, very good script. And I said, now, you know, I've got to make up a budget, first of all. Let's tell me, first of all, what do I put in for the script? She said, I don't know. And she said, I have an option on the script. So I had to buy the script, first of all, and went, went from there. That, that particular piece seemed like it was really, really important that the actors were really top-notch, because what they were required to do in that film was not something that... You're talking about Reds and Ties now. Yes, mm -hmm. not yeah. something that just any well, old actor could do. Well, what happened... Uh, very much because Ellison was part of it, we did make the deal with mm -hmm. Warner Brothers. And I worked in the, uh, worked primarily with a man named Rob Lawrence. There were three producers on it. Uh, one person who was sort of intermediary and brought the script to the attention, and Rob Lawrence and myself. And I've never been more impressed with a producer than I was with Rob Lawrence. Uh, I thought I knew a lot about filmmaking till I, till I started working with him. And I, hmm. uh, in the preparation and the execution and everything, I've never, never met anyone more capable. Was he assigned by Warner Brothers? He was brought in, yes, he was brought in by Clint. Actually, it was through Clint, he was brought in by Warner Brothers. And uh, he was, I, I couldn't, couldn't have been more impressed. I've never been impressed more by anyone I've worked with than, than I was with Rob. And did you have a casting director that pulled those incredible actors for you, or how did uh, that yeah, happen? We, we had a casting director. Uh, the casting changed someone. Um, Clint likes to work with the same people. I mean, he has a staff who know exactly what he wants and how it's done, and he's very loyal to them. And we brought in a casting director who had done the films for Clint before, and she died. Yeah. And her son took over, and he came in then. Who was it, Maureen? I, who was it? From, from, she's lived in New York, and I, I don't remember her name right now. I'm sorry I don't. Mm -hmm. uh, and but she got the, you, uh, Kevin and, and Marcia Gay Harden? Yeah. Uh, 
that, because then, you know, when you talk about people on that level, uh, it's not just a casting director who makes suggestions. It's really the, the, the top people who make it. And the final decisions for that, all that, was really made by Alison. Mm. And uh, as it turned out, you know, we couldn't have done any better than, than Kevin Bloom or, or, or Marshall Young. And Alison would have been way too young for that part. I'm sorry? Allison was wrote that part for wanted to play the part of Marsha Gay Harden's part or another part. No, Allison and yeah, and Allison initially was looking for that part. Yeah, too young. Uh, she could have played a little bit older. I mean, you could, it's easier to age people than make them look younger. But but you know, directing is really. I think it's also something she she likes more than anything else to do now. Mm -hmm. Also that boy that was in the film, that was a pretty challenging yeah. role for a kid, you know? They were all, I mean, and, and Alison was very good for the actors. So it, it, it uh, uh, and I think they did a, did a great job. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you are, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about, you came back, you were in Cannes, were you in Cannes this year? Yeah, I go to Cannes every year. And how was it this year? Uh, this year I was, really more involved in the financial part of it. And uh, I, I, I want to say, I usually don't spend the whole time. I usually stay about six, seven days. Uh, and kind of, it's kind of, I, I, I think it was a little bit better than expected, but it was still a tough market. Hmm. How do you keep up to date on where the money is coming from, what countries it's coming from, where, what the tax incentives are and shooting in different places. How do you keep to, up to date on this all the time? Because well, it seems very difficult. Of, of the 30-some films I've made, mm -hmm. most of them were made overseas. It was not intentionally. In other words, I didn't say I want to make a film overseas. It was made partly because some of the ideas I had lend themselves more to overseas productions. The other advantage, and that may be changing again, was that when you dealt with someone overseas, you'd talk to people who could make decisions. When you talk to someone in the US, uh, it's easier to turn down a script. It's much more difficult to have it accepted. And among the most underrated people in the industry are the readers. Uh, the readers can turn down a script, but they can't give you a yes. Then it goes to different stages, mm -hmm. and and the contracts are you know you spent I don't know fantastic amounts on legal work mm. for every film, and the problem is that it takes almost as much legal work to do a small film as it does to do a large film. Mm. Yeah, I felt that I feel that way about films in general. It seems to me if you're putting every all the pieces together. Uh, for a short film, it's very similar to putting the pieces together for a long yeah. film. But that's absolutely right. I think a lot of people, what they're trying to do, and, and they may not be so far off, to make a film for almost nothing. I mean, they can make a film for a few thousand, anybody can make a film today, and use it really uh, as a sales tool. See, this is what I've done. Mm -hmm. Now, if, if you can finance the film now and we put, you know, the different people in it or the same people in it, this is what you're going to get. How, how important is it to line up big stars for your independent films as far as financing goes? Very difficult. Mm -hmm. Very difficult because the, 
I think the agencies have to make a certain amount of money on the film. So they, they have to uh, uh, usually want pay or play offers, which as an independent you really can't do. Could you explain what pay or play means? Pay or play means that you tell an actor he's going to get paid whether the film gets made, or, made not. or not. That's right. Hmm. Um, it just seems to me uh, that, that the film industry, as far as funding goes and as far as the way things are getting made, uh, is changing so rapidly that I don't know. I don't know what sources people go. Do you generally just talk to people and that's how you get your information about what the climate is? Or do you read certain publications? Well, I, no, I, I read publications, yes. Mm -hmm. When it comes to, to co-productions, mm -hmm. I think I started them before they become popular, really. Mm. Because for whatever reason, they're easier to do, they're faster to do. Uh, so I, I know, I think, quite a bit about the advice. And they, of course, they change, too. Mm -hmm. And then you work with subsidies, obviously, and that, uh, if you have, they change, but you can adjust to that too, and you know what subsidies are available. Can you explain to me what a subsidy is? Subsidy is, if you go and shoot in a state, let us say, and they say under certain conditions, mm -hmm. you will contribute a certain amount of money, mm -hmm. and it varies in different states. Right now, it's more difficult again, because, you know, everybody is broke, mm -hmm. so to get money is more difficult. Uh, films, I think, are a good source if the subsidies are set up right, because it's a clean industry. You know, you go in and you go out, and uh, uh, you don't mess up the, the area. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the idea, if subsidies should be, and not always are in different countries, based, in my opinion, on the number of people you get employment for. Now, you have point systems in most countries where it says, let's say you have 10 creative points, and they insist that, let's say, you have uh, a point for the director, a point for the, for the actor, or the two points for two actors, for the DP, and so forth. Uh, that has kept quite a few people from being able to make films. Mm -hmm. Because, for instance, I had an instance where I wanted to do a film in Australia. Uh, both the director and the writer were American. So we did not qualify for any Australian, or almost no Australian subsidies. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you make a film in Australia and you go by their rules, which are much stricter as far as bringing people in is concerned, you can get a lot of money, but then you have to conform. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if a script comes to you, for instance, uh, with a director attached to it, and the director is American, you can't furnish and he doesn't qualify. Mm. The easiest ones to deal with is that you can bring one or sometimes two actors, American actors. Uh, but uh, the otherwise the points is, is very difficult. And the producers don't get points? Uh, the producers don't, no, the, the producers, um, Yes, the producers get points, but the producers have, uh, in Australia, it's more strict because you have to pay a limited part as far as decision making is concerned. In uh, uh, it again, it varies what country you go to. Uh, for instance, making films in Europe today has become somewhat easier 
because if, if you make a film, let's say, in, in Germany or, in, or in, in the UK, they all count as the same unit, the same entity, so that you qualify. So if you put together a team and you have to deliver a certain number of points, you can, you can bring them easier. Let's say you do a film in Germany and you feel that it's an English language film, you want an English language director, mm -hmm. and you can bring in an English director because he qualifies the same way as a German director. If you bring in a director from another, from Germany, for instance, it's a different story. Hmm. Uh, so you have to, in putting a package together, you have to be prepared to deal with that. Wow, it's, it's definitely um, like putting a puzzle together. It is a puzzle, absolutely. And then when one piece falls, maybe it affects other pieces as well, so it's constantly moving around. Now, you made a point before we started talking on the, on the air uh, about having several projects, all or as many as 10 projects going at once that you're trying to get started, because just focusing on one, a lot of times you won't be doing anything, is what you said. Um, is that generally the way it's been? Yeah, but 10, when I say 10, it's a little bit too broad in mm -hmm. one way. I would say four or five that are really active. Mm -hmm. And then you have ideas for other things that you work on and put aside. Because if you only have one film, and for any reason the film doesn't work, mm -hmm. and often you have to spend a lot of time waiting for someone to give an answer to the availability, someone else is making the same film, mm -hmm. uh, situation changes, then, then you, you waste your time. Do, is there any benefit to having a slate of films, having several films that you want to make that are maybe low-budget ones that might be able to somehow help each other out in getting they funding? They can. The problem is if, if somebody then who puts up the money wants them cross-collateralized mm. and you have different producers, and then it doesn't, it doesn't work so well. Uh, but I, I think, I mean, when I look at the film to do, uh, the ideal budget, the budgets have changed really. I think the ideal budgets are somewhere between three on the low end, maybe even two on the low end, and um, I would say 25 to 30 million, maybe exceptionally at 35 million. Uh, anything above that is risky. So you're it's saying a range from two to three million to 25 million, or uh, that whole range? Yeah, anyway, yeah. anywhere I mean, in if, there? If, you, if you make a film for which you don't need uh, an important theatrical release, maybe just a few to enhance mm -hmm. a little bit of small release, uh, then you, if the film is good and plays and works, you should be all right, you know, even up to five, four, five, six million dollars. Mm -hmm. And if, you say it should be all right because of TV cable and if, foreign yes, sales? Yes, uh, absolutely. Because even, even now? I, Provided you set it up ahead of time, where you have commitments to cover cover it. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, I would suggest not going into it, unless you simply want to do a film, you know, for your own sake. So, so let's say um, you went to Cannes and you have uh, three or four films. Then, when you sit with the different foreign sales companies or agents, you say, "I have this actor in this genre." that will shoot uh, this way, how much for Japan? Is that how it works? And then they say, well, we don't like this one, or you have to change the actor for us to take it for Japan, and we'll give you X. 
Well, I think Cannes, in a way, is very much misunderstood because very few people make deals in Cannes. When you go to Cannes, they want to sell, mostly, or they want to get prices. So when you come in, first of all, the people who make the deals are not available, are not even there. Uh, and there is no time for that. And when you go to screenings, if you go to Cannes as a, to, to buy films, you see maybe, I don't know, every day, 10, 15, 20 films. You go and you spend maybe five or 10 minutes, and then you walk out, which is very hard to accept, someone to accept it, because you think your film isn't any good. And the film is, if it's good enough, then he will go back and get a DVD or want to see more about it and learn more about it. And, and many, many decisions are made after Cannes or before Cannes and ready to go and say, I have so many sold. But in Cannes itself, you get very few commitments and they're getting fewer and fewer, frankly. So how do you go about um, making your pre-distribution uh, arrangements? Uh... By, by people you know and people you've dealt with mostly, which helps, obviously. Um, it is you. You can you can go to the distribution companies here. Uh, if they don't know you, it's a little bit more difficult, obviously, than if you know you have done something. Um, but they also, um, I think, you just have to do it by trial and error. The big di difference is that you cannot. It's very difficult to finance a film based totally on pre-sales. It's almost impossible. Subsidies, yes. The most difficult part of films are about the 25 to 30%, which are the, really the real investment. And yet really comes in second position. I mean, your banks come first, your gap financing come, come first, your minimal guarantees come first. And then comes the, the, the part that really, if you have 25%, maybe 30, but at least 25%, of cash to put in that it becomes a gamble because you're not in first position, then it's much, much easier to have people listen to you. Why? Because then to get with subsidies and pre-sales is not that difficult anymore. It's the people who are in second position that have the biggest risk. And by that time, you will have given up a lot too. I mean, you will have, if you want an important actor, for instance, and he likes the script, uh, he might work for less than a salary, but he wants something important to the back end. So a lot of things have been, uh, have been given up before you ever start. So the 25% average of pure risk money are the most difficult parts. So if you make a film for, let's say, for $3 million, and you come up with $750,000, then you're in a much stronger position. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So you walk in, you walk in, and you say, "I have not only do I have Bruce Willis, but I have a million dollars cash, and all I need is this." Not that you say you have it, oh. because all you have to do is open the trades, and you find people saying, "We match anyone. We come up with our fifty percent if you give us your fifty percent." Then you find out he takes in your fifty percent to get the other fifty percent. Mm -hmm. So the the money has to be there, has to be in the bank, has to be in escrow. You have to show that you really have it. And you show that you have the actor by, what do you show? But the, but the, well, in order to get it, I mean, the Yuri, 
subject to your director and, and your actors. Mm -hmm. But it's easier to have the money in place first based on the script mm -hmm. and say, and you can say, fine, I would only use it if I get a director you approve and if I go, give, get an actor you approve and get a list of actors. Um, don't do the tenancy where you come with nine of the best known actors and one you know you get nobody ever heard of. I mean, all these things have been tried could be done probably 30 <laughs> years ago, but they don't work anymore today. Pierre, the, uh, a lot of our listeners out there are listening to your career and saying, this, this is a career that I want. Um, if you were a young person today, with all the knowledge that you have now, and you were just starting out in this career, what would you do? Direct. Direct. Because that's the most fun. Because once you start a film, you really turn it over to the director. Mm -hmm. And then you really have two choices is either you accept what he or she does or replace them. Mm -hmm. And you can't, uh, I had to do it in a couple of films where the actors would come to me and say, the director doesn't give us instructions. He just moves people from point A to point B. And that's not a good way to work. And what do you do if, it's the, if, you're, if you started production, the actors have come to you and they said, this director really doesn't know what he's doing. Do you replace them? What do you do? If you her. can, you replace him, but it depends what contract you have with a director. If you mm -hmm. get a director who said, I love the script, I want to do it, and I will work for you know very little, mm -hmm. uh, unless you have a buyout clause with a director that you can replace him, uh, then you're stuck with the director. There are um, many people that I've talked to over the years who have worked on um, independent films and they've said you know I really wish early on when I saw the bad apple in the in the in the bunch I would have just gotten rid of them whoever it was a line producer or whatever um, do you, how do you handle it when you're on the set and you realize that there's somebody there that might be you know not right for the production causing a lot of trouble do you are you able to spot that is it if, easy yes, to you can usually spot it you usually spot it fairly fast mm -hmm. and then you replace them immediately you pay them off, you pay them whatever they are owed, mm -hmm. and, and you don't wait really any time, unless you legally have to do it. Mm -hmm. If you don't have to do it, right away, because that person, if he knows he's being replaced, uh, will mess up the rest of the film. Do most projects have a problem like that, or is it, is it a common thing, or not? It does happen quite often. It does. Yeah, it happen, yeah. Have you been directing? I directed quite a few of my television films. I did second unit directing on quite a few of the films. I directed one film, and uh, what I learned for it was that I never realized the pressure a director is under till you do it yourself. Because as a producer, you constantly have to watch the budget, whether it's your money or somebody else's money. It doesn't make any difference. You have a budget, you come in with it. Uh, so I don't think it's a good idea and I've done it in the film I did, to be producer and director on it. And it's no good to see you hire a producer when the producer knows you strictly work for him and whatever he says. I mean, you don't get a second opinion. You just get a line, you get a line producer, which is fine. But if you want a creative producer who really help you, uh, it's better to have someone else to do it. Now, again, uh, times have changed. If, if you have more time to do it, and, and you can you know, allow yourself to make mistakes and redo it. You don't have that today, even in the big films. How did, how, um, you mentioned that the woman that directed Blue Car, it was her first film. 
And um, you said it was a little bit difficult. People turned it down because yeah. it was a first-time director. How? Can, that's another chicken or egg thing. Uh, what what should a young director do um, to make himself or herself more likely to be able to be financed? Uh, well, like quite a few people in our industry, she went. I think she went to AFI, I believe. I'm not quite sure. And she did a student film, and the student film showed that she knew how to handle actors. That was the key. With anything else, you can find help and find support. But handling actors, and I, I felt then and still feel that your best directors usually are writers, actors, uh, and uh, editors. I would say you can't generalize ever. I mean, you can get someone entirely different. Mm -hmm. As well, but those are those those are your, your best sources because they're all creative, and they all pick key play key roles. Hmm. Wow! Um, thank you so much for giving us your time. I think we probably should end this because I know all of us have to get out there and out there and work. Um, but this has been extremely informative, and. Normally at the end of the show we do something that's called Film Bites, where we just give like one little piece of advice to um, people out there that might be just getting into the industry of something that you've learned along the way. I feel like a lot of this discussion has been one film bite after another, so if there's something that you or Kamala want to add. Well, I'll say that what I learned or a film bite that I um, have gotten from this conversation has to do with uh, putting together your distribution in advance of making your film, finding a way to do that, uh, because we I actually made my first film and we have not found distribution, and it's heartbreaking because you work so hard and you put all your passion into it and then nothing happens. I, would, I happens. would like to add something else to it. Mm -hmm. I think to get into it, you have to be slightly crazy because you work <laughs> eight days a week, not seven days, 25 hours a day. And in some instances, when you add up, if something doesn't work out right, you might have made two cents an hour yeah. mm -hmm. by the time you get through, certainly as a, as a producer. Yeah. So unless you have the, and, and also that you should feel that every time you make a film, it's almost a new challenge. And whether you make whatever the film consists of, whatever it is, and it depends, you like to make serious films, you make comedies, I love to make biographical films, but you have to believe it's going to be fun to do that, and you have to put in the time. Now, Pierre, one other thing here. You um, say 25 hours a, a day and eight days a week, and you raised a family of three children. Um, how did family fit into this kind of a profession? They put up with me, that was a lot, because <laughs> I was, no, I mean, I'm serious about it. I was gone more time, that, that, um, that, that's the one regret I have, because doing a film and looking after the family at the same time is very difficult, and my wife was responsible for keeping me going all this time to look after the family and take care of things. I couldn't have done it without her. So I have an understanding wife or girlfriend, and, <laughs> and, and the enthusiasm. All right, on that, we're going to end the show. And thank you so much, Pierre Oppenheimer, for being with us. Thank you. And we'll see everybody else next time. Okay. Thanks. Thank you.